The first reading today is Isaiah 58, verses 6 through to 11. You can find this on page 527. Is, this, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. The New Testament reading is from uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, and it's pa- found on page 841 of the Pew Bible. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for, for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, David and Heidi. And uh, let me add my welcome. If uh, you're new, visiting amongst us, if you've returned from gallivanting around the world, uh, welcome back. I know uh, several have had holidays and still holiday season. Um, you've joined us as uh, we're in the middle of three weeks of looking at money, uh, not because there's a, a particular drive at the moment on that we have at church where we, we want or need your money. In fact, you know, the opposite. It's that uh, I suggested last week we're looking at it for a few reasons. One, it's just important. Uh, you know, as soon as your money, if your money stopped today and your access to it, think of all the things you couldn't do. Uh, money matters. Uh, all the more, God has a lot to say about money, uh, both the blessings of it and the dangers of it. Uh, And I also suggested last week one other reason why we're looking at money is it could well be a spiritual blind spot for us. How often have any of us confessed to a friend, yeah, I think I've been a bit greedy this week. Uh, It could well just be that blind spot. Uh, And so rather than trying to discover every passage that the Bible says about money, we're just looking at some themes and how it shapes it. Last week we looked at how the power of God shapes what money, liquid power, is. Uh, This week we turn our thoughts more to how we spend and love. Uh, But how about we pray that we might be shaped by his word. Lord and Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that uh, you in your kindness and mercy uh, reveal your thoughts to us that we might know you. And Father, thanks that even in greater kindness and mercy you give your spirit to apply your word to us and we pray that your spirit would be at work this morning, uh, teaching us your ways, helping us to think like you and act like you. 
Uh, Father, we ask that uh, the way in which you work in our lives would be to the glory of you and your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Last week I uh, suggested, if you were here, that I spoke as a powerful person to other powerful people. Uh, I even waved $50 around. It's disappeared over the week. That's what happens to cash, doesn't it? Uh, Today, I I suppose I want to say we recognise the limits of our power. Uh, We who have cash, we have power. You know, it's a flexible way of of making work happen and we can transfer. But there are limits, aren't there? You know, there there seem, um, even for us who who have cash and have wealth, just by being in Australia, we have plenty of it. There there seem so many demands, uh, so many possibilities that we could never meet. And so... What do we do when our power is limited, when our money is limited? How do we choose? How do we determine our cash values? You know, on one hand, you've got the basics of life, you know. You've got the grocery bill, you've got the electricity bill, you've got the landline and the mobile, and that just keeps things ticking going in life. You know, there's the the paying the rent or servicing your mortgage uh, that give you somewhere to live, and then you need to pay as well for the public transport or or the, the petrol and the car and the insurance that allow you somewhere to go and so you're not just stuck at home all the time. And that's even before, you know, you get onto the kind of pleasures of life. You know, there's eating out, there's uh, uh, night at the movies, there's the gym membership that I know some people take up, there's, there's uh, the gentle letter I got from my uh, daughter's ballet uh, school which came with this threat of a $50 fine and expulsion from classes if it wasn't paid promptly. This was, this was the first notice we received. Tough discipline in ballet. Um, you know, and, and then... Then there's, I suppose, that's all the stuff just for yourself before you even get on to the, the good causes, if I can call them that. You know, the, the phone call thanking you for supporting needy refugees, but wondering at the same time if you'd consider doubling your level of support because the need has increased. Uh, or the letter and receipt from the mission organisation with uh, a story of a life transformed in Africa, transformed by the power of the gospel, uh, and in the letter, just that wish, wouldn't it be great if this could be done for more lives, uh, more people to experience that same release? Yeah, m- money is liquid power, and it's true. We, we are powerful just because we have it. Uh, it's all God's ultimately. But there are so many possibilities. So many possibilities beyond our resources that uh, perhaps if we stop to think about it, we can feel a little weak in the face of all the options. See, God has entrusted power, money to us that we would use it not for ourselves but for his purposes. But what does that mean? Does it mean we, we have to sell the car to support more sponsored children? You know, is paying your electricity bill a matter of godliness? Should we pour all our money into just mission work that tells people about Jesus and saves them eternally and not worry about just meeting their earthly needs? You know, is, is the tithe, which is a fancy Christian jargony way of saying giving 10%, you know, is that really all the Bible has to say about how we spend? In fact, does the Bible even say it? So how do you choose? How do you determine your cash values? The key is to get your love right. So rather than looking at lots of, uh, you know, every text about money in the scriptures, I want us this morning to examine the love of God. And how that shapes how we spend. Uh, Two features of his love that I want you to remember, I want you to explore. Firstly, that the love of God means he's the perfect provider. Uh, And secondly, that God's love is disturbingly generous. So first, that 
God's love means uh, he is the perfect provider for those he's bound to. Uh, first of all, you see that, that provision of God, um, not in how he relates to us, first of all, but how he relates to himself. I don't think we often stop and think about God relating to himself, but, but the Trinity, the triunity of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, that's the starting point of what we see a loving relationship is. You know, it can be hard for us to get our heads around how God can be one and three. Uh, perhaps the best way to grasp it uh, is, that, is that the three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, are so committed to loving each other uh, that, they are so, that, that they're bound to each other by that, that, so much so that they actually live in each other. They are so other person-centred that they actually dwell and live in each other. So the language of John 14, uh, verse 10, picks this up. Don't you believe, Jesus speaking, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Uh, the words I say to you are not just my own, rather it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Jesus speaks about how they are so committed to each other, they are in each other. What makes them mutually indwell is that they are so completely other person centred in their love. They're so wholly devoted to providing what's best for each other. So John 3.35, the Father loves the Son, places everything in his hands. John 5.20, the Father loves the Son, shows him all he does. Again, Jesus flipping it around, uh, John 5.30, by myself I do nothing, I judge only as I hear. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. You know, over and over in the Gospel of John, you see in the way in which they act to perfectly provide what's good for each other. They love each other so much that they are bound to each other and it reinforces their binding. Those are the three are one. You know, as you read through John's Gospel, uh, and I encourage you to do it, it's a great Gospel, you actually discover even when you get to the cross that that, that is really a moment of uniting love. Even as God himself is torn apart, it's a moment of uniting love as the Father and the Son both seek to provide glory for each other. That's what's going on at Calvary. And what's remarkable is that God doesn't just keep it to himself. He invites people into that kind of bond. So John 17, 11, Jesus prays for his followers. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. He says the same in, in verse 26, I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. See, God is the perfect provider. He is bound within himself, cares and loves, and he invites you and I into that sort of same love. And so he will love with the same commitment those he's bound to. God chooses to commit himself to certain people. Uh, he promises to care for his children. He makes a promise to Abram. He, he keeps it. Psalm 111 verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him, who remember his covenant forever. Covenant's a fancy word for, for a contract, a deal, uh, uh, that those he is bound to. So God will provide yeah, food. He meets his obligations. Uh, in Hebrews 12, he, he provides what's best for it. He, he disciplines like a father does a legitimate child. So yeah, we, we will keep suffering because we live in a world that, that decays and so we get sick. Uh, and yes, we will suffer because we'll make stupid decisions and we'll have to learn by it. And yes, we will suffer because we belong to Jesus in a world that crucified him. But in it all, it's not that God is walking away, he's actually providing what's best for us because God provides 
for those he's bound to. He gives us even the discipline we need. See, the love of God is nothing less than providing what is best for those he's obliged to. That feels a little abstract and out there, doesn't it? What's this got to do with our cash? What's it got to do with your wallet and your spending? How does it help us prioritise? We need to be providers too. We, We spend to provide for those we're bound to. And I suspect we do this intuitively. We're, we're kind of used to, you get a bill and you just pay it. But there's actually a reason behind it. It's an aspect of your godliness. See, we are made in the image of God. Um, Genesis 1, we as the image of God, our, our differences, male and female, reflect his difference as three persons. Um, our, our unity as one humanity reflects his unity as being one God. Uh, we are bound to each other in one sense. We have an obligation and yet there's even closer bindings that God has set us up with. Uh, the Bible recognises that there's, there's degrees of loyalty. So in Genesis 2, when someone gets married, what do they do? They leave their parents and they go and they're bound to their wife. A higher calling of loyalty is expected and we are bound by that. And we need to be providers according to the level of binding we have. So we provide, first of all, for our family. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.8, the Christian who won't provide for his own family is actually worse than an unbeliever. You know, it, it's, it's godly to prioritise the needs of your family when it comes to spending. Uh, in Mark 7, Jesus has a go at the falsely pious who talk about how, oh no, I can't care for my, my parents in need because um, I'm giving that money to God. Well, no, uh, give it to God by caring for them. Yeah, it's right to be a provider. Um, of course, we need to be honest with ourselves about uh, what loving provision actually is. Uh, Andrew Carnegie, uh, famous industrialist, philanthropist, uh, Forbes estimates that if he had, you know, updating his wealth to our modern era, he would have been worth about $300 billion. Just about. Uh, I think about $3 billion short of that, but, you know, who's counting? Uh, he gave this warning about leaving inheritances to his children. The almighty dollar bequeathed to a child is an almighty curse. No man has the right to handicap his son with such a burden as great wealth. Yes, we provide for our families, but we need to be careful and honest about what provision really is. But but we're not just bound to our family. We're we're bound to the need of fellow believers, other Christians. Galatians 6.10 reminds us, do good to all, especially those who belong to the household of faith got to care for Christians. We're bound to the state, you know, the the government. Um, Being a Christian doesn't mean that we get to be kind of separatist radicals and run our own little parliament and do things our own way. No, no, Romans 13, we submit to governments. Uh, We follow this principle in verse 7 of Romans 13. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Yeah, the point there is we are people who pay taxes not just because we might get caught if we don't and locked up, uh, but we pay taxes willingly. Yeah, willingly. We choose to do it. Uh, we pay the right amount and we be careful to, to watch that doesn't get a spirit in our hearts that actually is always looking to, to find the loophole to dodge our obligations. No, no, we pay taxes and honour and revenue willingly. And we're bound to pay those who work for us and pay them properly. Proverbs 11.1, God hates the use of dishonest scales. That is, God hates it when we try and undervalue the work of others. 
and try and cut them out by getting a better deal for ourselves. Yeah, paying your credit card bill and your electricity bill, uh, it's not just sensible, it's actually a matter of godliness. Yeah, again, in 1 Timothy 5, um, the reason you pay uh, for, for elders of a church, people like me, uh, is not because they do a greater work than you, it's not because it's compulsory tithing, but it's just like you would, you know, if an ox was treading out grain, you'd let it eat too. They're doing a job, Christian ministers are doing a job, you know, like every other worker, they have a right to live. That's just the principle. You meet your obligations and your bindings. How do you spend? Yeah, look at the love of God who is a great provider and make sure your cash commitments meet it. Stop for a moment. Are you a responsible provider for your family's needs? Or are you just providing for their luxuries? Do you seek to avoid appropriate tax or do you pay it willingly? Do you pay bills on time or do you let them slide? Do you pay employees what they're worth and what they need? So as you consider the demands of love, a love that provides, with it I want you to hold the second part, the disturbing generosity of God. I say God's generosity is disturbing because it's really imbalanced. So when God chooses to love, he actually destroys the normal way we work. We normally have this quid pro quo way of doing relationships, that I invite you around for a meal and, you know, a couple of weeks later you invite me back and that's how it works. We'd be nice to each other. God doesn't work that way. And I say it's disturbing because of the ridiculous lengths he goes to for love, how much he's willing to hurt himself for love. And I say it's disturbing because I suspect that as a church community, that this is the aspect of God's love that we will find more challenging. I suspect we are naturally good at providing. Perhaps we're not naturally good at being generous in a disturbing way that God is. Because how does God love? See, God loves the needy and he's generous to them. Psalm 68, 5, he's a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of widows. Jeremiah forty nine eleven. leave your orphans, I'll protect them. Your widows too can trust in me. You get it? God is somebody who actually cares for those who can't make a cry for justice but can only cry out for mercy. See, I, I, our tendency is, you know, we give something you know, from our small change to uh, that kind of beggar you see uh, outside QVB. Uh, but Jesus in Luke 14 invites the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind to become honoured guests at an exclusive party. And even more disturbing is that he doesn't just love the needy, uh, he loves his enemies. See, God's kingdom is not made up of the respectable. Uh, The Bible describes how people were before uh, they were invited into his kingdom, described in a few different ways. Let me give you some of them. Uh, Formerly sons of the devil, former enemies of God, former persecutors of the righteous, former whoring adulteresses and haters of God and man. Seriously, do you want to love those kind of people? God does. We keep our distance and yet God is disturbingly generous to them. Uh, He gives of his own wealth for such people as that. When Jesus was on the cross, while the nails were still in his hands and while the insults were still flying at him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because what was happening at the cross... In 2 Corinthians 5.19, it's it's that God at that moment is reconciling the world back to himself in Christ, these enemies, not counting men's sins against them. 
You know, how is that going to shape when you pull out your wallet and spend your cash, this generous love of God? Well, first, it means that to be generous is actual spiritual health. If you're stingy, you're spiritually sick. That's what we read, or Heidi read for us in Isaiah 58. God approves those who spend of themselves on behalf of the poor. Again, that, as David read to us in 1 Timothy 6, um, generosity is your protection, you rich person and me rich person, from trusting the instability of wealth. You know, in the light of God's generosity, you can see asking a question about tithing, you know, 10%, um, it's just distracting, isn't it? And, and, and irrelevant. Generosity is the key. You know, come to church, read your Bible, pray. They're all going to hit you, you know, healthy, spiritually. But generosity is just as important in guarding your soul. Uh, John Wesley uh, said, Money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. And Wesley, um, if you know him, a famous preacher, also a writer, he earned a lot of royalties in his life. His ambition was to give so generously as to leave nothing behind when he died. Uh, Apparently he achieved that goal. We, if we're going to be spiritual healthy, must be generous. And secondly, we must be generous to those who are in need. Not just lavish with our friends and our peers. Proverbs 19.17, He who's kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward him for what he's done. And James 1 talks about how what's the religion that God approves of and finds acceptable and pure? It's looking after widows and orphans in their distress. Yeah, the poor matter, especially poor Christians, and worldwide there are plenty of them. You know, I think we're too quick often in, in church circles. We take passages like, um, if you know, 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and, and we use them as a call for giving to church work or something like that. First and foremost, it's actually a call to support poor Christians. Uh, so the Apostle Paul, um, he spent over five years organising this mega collection for poor, starving uh, Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. Um, it, it stretched. He was inviting churches all the way across the whole of the northern Mediterranean. It was, it was a massive project he embarked on because poor Christians matter. Yeah, and the, and the, the principle in 2 Corinthians 8 is not that we have to swap places with them. You know, wouldn't it be better if we were the poor ones? And they were, No, no. Uh, rather that from our plenty we can supply their need. That in some sense there'd be a quality that, that from our surplus we give, but we've got to be honest, of course, about what our surplus is. Now, when when uh, Oliver Cromwell, uh, he was the Lord Protector of England, uh, you may know that England was a republic for about 20 years, a couple of centuries ago. It's still time. Uh, when Oliver Cromwell was, uh, was the Lord Protector of England, there was a financial crisis. Um, there was no silver available, couldn't print or couldn't mint any more coins. Um, sent his treasurer out. He went exploring uh, around the nation, found, yes, no, there is silver. It's just in the cathedrals, in the statues of the saints. Um, if you know Cromwell, you won't be surprised with his solution. We'll melt down the saints and put them into circulation. We'll melt down the saints and put them into circulation. Uh, and it's been observed we face the same problem now, don't we? You know, for, for Cromwell, the problem wasn't that there wasn't enough silver. It's just that it was contained in the saints and so it wasn't readily available. And today we, saints, 
Uh, that's just a fancy word for saying Christian people. We've got the silver. The challenge is how to melt it down, put it into circulation. How readily we part with it generously for the poor. In all honesty, if you're going to pick five adjectives to describe yourself, five adjectives to describe our church, would generosity be on the list? Or to put it another way, uh, when the Sydney Morning Herald writes its uh, next editorial um, on the, the church, do you reckon generosity will be one of the adjectives they use to describe us? Keep thinking about that. I've got two more implications for us. Uh, we Thirdly, we give purposefully to reconcile enemies back to ourselves and God. That's what our money's for. That's how we choose to spend. Um, 1, Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Peter 3 has this principle. Um, when someone insults you, do you know what you do? You bless them. That's how you repay them. Yeah, to spend money on, on ambitions that are, that are less than seeing a rebellious world and rebellious people brought back to God is actually to be seriously out of step with God who, who tore himself apart for that purpose. What it looks like can be really quite simple, quite small, quite local. Um, it can start with you know, investing your, your money and giving opportunity for your kids' friends to hear about Jesus. Now, we, we made an offer. There's a, a kids' um, art club coming up at church soon. Uh, they'll get to hear about the creative God at the same time. We've offered to our kids' friends and, and their parents. We, we'll pay for them to come along. It's not very expensive. It's an investment in seeing people away from God reconciled to him. You, know, you choosing to, to buy things at the fair market we run at church, uh, fair trade market at church, so you can give it as a gift, and you end up chatting about where you got it from, a great conversation. Yeah, money spent to reconcile. But it builds out, doesn't it? it you know, It does mean that we give generously to, to see locals here come to know about Jesus, uh, as someone who gave an anonymous cheque for $10,000 to Carol's Under the Bridge did. Uh, it does mean that we do pay for the, the theological education of a, a Ugandan pastor who's going to go on to speak to thousands of other people about Jesus. And it even means buying lunch for your colleague who stabbed you in the back or your neighbour who kind of put the holes in your tree so that it kind of died and they got a better view. You know, it even means spending money for them. So you can have lunch you can repay their insult and curse with a blessing and you can begin that process of reconciling back to them and bringing them back to God too. That, that's not expensive, that's just painful. As someone wrote, I've heard people say, I want more of a heart for missions. And I always respond, Jesus tells you exactly how to get it. Put your money in missions and in your church and to the poor and your heart will follow. Finally, the disturbing love of God means that we are generous to the point that it hurts. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. You know, when God was generous to his enemies, it wasn't spare change. It hurt him. Now, I want to ask again, does that characterise you? Does it characterise our church? Are we generous to the point that it actually hurts or do we just give from skimming off the top of the surplus and we don't even actually notice it? How would the Sydney Morning Herald describe us? 
want you to think about that as you listen to this description from some non-Christian writers back in the second century, talking about some Christians. If they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if there is among them a man that is poor or needy and they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy, the needy with their necessary food. Or again, another description by this guy, Lucian of Samosata. Uh, he was a pagan. He didn't like Christians. He made fun of them. Um, he thought they were quite stupid the way they supported people they didn't even know. He said this, At their own expense, they lavish their all because the poor wretches have convinced themselves that they are going to be immortal and live for all time. So he saw these Christians, they think they're going to heaven, so they just waste their cash caring for people. They don't even know them. Idiots. I don't think that's what the Sydney Morning Herald write about us, do you? You know, we are a community of people who are generally committed to excellence. You know, just in life, we are people who pursue excellence. We need to seriously take up the challenge of 2 Corinthians 8 verse 7. See that you also excel in the grace of giving. Now this week, just like every week, you're going to have to make some financial decisions I want you to hold on to the fact that it's not going to be an act just of power, but it's also a choice of love. May our cash values show that we are shaped more by the love of God than we are by the love of this world. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for uh, your love. We thank you for the way in which you provide so generously and lavishly. And we thank you all the more for the way in which you are disturbingly generous when we don't deserve it. Uh, Father, we pray that that kind of love uh, would permeate our hearts, that we might go on to love others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.